0: Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we will pray one more time. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, even as we read this, we are struck by your grace and the peace that can only come from our great God and Savior. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Help us to understand how you save us. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. What does the gospel do to a church? What does the gospel do to a church? We know that the gospel brings new life to individuals. In fact, we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. We know that sometimes the gospel even changes entire families. Sometimes even for generations, and some of your families are testimony to that. We know that the gospel can change, in reality, entire nations. Even, even bringing real life into communities as newly converted Christians begin to truly love one another. And we see the, the founding of, of not only churches and missions, but even orphanages and schools and hospitals as the gospel spreads through a land. But what about for individual churches? What does the gospel do? Or let me just expand that a little bit and say, what does the proclaimed word of God do to a church over a period of time, say, over a lifetime, a generation? Well, the answer to this is what we're going to see as we spend some time in the really for the foreseeable future studying this first letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Corinth. Paul will famously say in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, some have taken that verse and and they've sort of twisted it a little bit to mean that the other stuff just isn't important. That studying the deep truths of Scripture and, and coming to understand, the say, the big words of the Bible are simply not necessary. Just Jesus, man. That's all you need. But that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what he's saying in chapter 2, verse 2. Especially when you read the rest of the letter. In fact, 1 Corinthians is a letter of great theological depth. And it's written, get this, to a very worldly church. People who probably didn't understand it all when the pastor likely first stood up and and read the letter to them that first time. Still, this letter has been used throughout history to explain the church's doctrine of, for example, marriage and singleness. Of sex and immorality. The church's understanding of idolatry, spiritual gifts, church unity, the, the impact of the wisdom of this world on the church, as well as many other teachings that Christians uh, need to understand and, and be conformed to in order to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so in this letter, Paul gives his longest theological explanation of the resurrection. Chapter 15, and the most famous teaching on Christian love in all of literature, in all of history, chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13. Sometimes Paul writes with joy and encouragement. Sometimes he writes with rebuke and admonition as he reveals his deep concern for a church that has been so easily drawn back into the wisdom of this age, yet he corrects them Because he so dearly loves them, as as we can clearly see in passages like chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, where he writes this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul considered the the members of the church at Corinth to be his own children because he'd led so many of them to Christ. We can read in Acts chapter 18 that that Paul ministered in the city of Corinth for about a year and a half. In fact, chapter 18 of Acts verse 4 says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. And then in verse 11 he, he tells us this, And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Many of the Corinthian Christians, those who were converted, were converted under his ministry. They owed their salvation and their knowledge of the scriptures to the preaching and teaching ministry of the apostle Paul. But who was Paul? It's the first word of the letter, Paul. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, who was Paul? Why was Paul an authority over the church at Corinth? He wasn't a, an officer of that, that specific church, so so he's not one of their elders, he's not one of their deacons, yet he writes to them with a clear authority. And in fact, in many places it's It's pretty clear that they've actually written to him for guidance, and this letter is a response to them. So it's obvious that they view Paul as an authority. That will be clear as we work our way through this. But they do view Paul as an authority. So the answer to that question, why Paul or who was Paul, is right here in this very first verse. This is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So we're going to spend most of our time looking at the apostle Paul and specifically his conversion and what gives him the sort of the moral authority to write this letter. But I just want to briefly mention that Sosthenes, which is one of the best names to say out loud in the New Testament, Sosthenes was probably Paul's secretary. Most likely, he he dictated, Paul dictated this letter for Sosthenes to write. And he was a Christian. Sosthenes was a Christian. Paul calls him brother. He's also mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verse 17, as having been the leader of the synagogue in, in the city of Corinth at one time. In fact, that passage, Acts 18, tells us that he was beaten by Paul's enemies. So, Sosthenes had been converted by Paul's preaching and he would have been well known to the church there in Corinth. But I want to, as I said, I want to focus our attention on the Apostle Paul this morning and so that we can understand how Paul could write the things that he does in this letter. We really need to start at the beginning. We really need to remember that when, when Paul writes things like, listen to what he will say to them in chapter 6. This is verses 9 through 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When Paul writes that, those are hard words. And when he writes that, he could have have easily put himself into that category. Now maybe his particular lifestyle of sin wasn't listed there. But he called himself the, the chief of sinners when he was writing to Timothy. In fact, Paul's sin was in many ways the the complete opposite of the Corinthians' list of sins there. Paul was completely self righteous, and his heart was filled with murder and hatred. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Paul's conversion this morning. And as I read this, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. This is really where we're going to be this morning. Keep in mind, as I read this, keep in mind the words that he had said to the Corinthian church, and such were some of you. Just keep those words in mind as I read Acts 9, verses 1 to 9. I also want to point out here, just before I read this, that Saul, I'll I'll explain this here in a minute, Saul and Paul are the same person. I'm going to use that interchangeably today. I'm sorry if it's confusing. It confuses me sometimes. I will just just understand. It's the same guy. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. As we um, consider the grace of God in the lives, both of the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul, I am convinced that we need more than anything else to understand the doctrines of grace. The teaching of the grace of God in salvation. As I worked through these passages this week, I was struck by three truths about our salvation. First, how depraved we are as sinners. Remember that phrase, and such were some of you. How depraved we are as sinners. Secondly, though, how unconditionally God makes us his own. Look at Paul. How unconditionally God makes us His own. And then, third, how irresistible is His grace. God created us to worship Him, God saves us to worship Him. And when we understand these truths about our salvation, as Paul, we, we will begin to, as Paul writes to in, in Ephesians, we will begin to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that our, that our hearts may be filled with the fullness of God. So the question they asked at the very beginning was, what does the gospel do to a church? Well we're going to get there as we unpack 1 Corinthians but the first truth that we need to understand is just how depraved we are as sinners. This is sometimes known as the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. The very first Christian martyr was Stephen. It wasn't Jesus, he was not a martyr. Stephen was the very first Christian martyr at least that we know of in the scriptures. And at his killing, near the end of Acts chapter 7 and and the early couple verses of chapter 8, we're introduced to a young Pharisee by the name of Saul. Saul, I I, kind of said this a minute ago, but Saul is his Hebrew name. He's named for the first king of Israel. But he was from Tarsus, which was a Roman city in what is now uh, modern-day Turkey. And as a result, while he was ethnically and religiously Jewish, he also was a, an official Roman citizen, which gave him certain rights and privileges and standing in society. It gave him also the ability to minister in those Greek cities which were a part of the Roman Empire, cities like Corinth. Because he was a Roman citizen... And the culture was heavily influenced by the Greeks. He also had what is sometimes called a Hellenistic or a Greek name, Paul. So he had two names, a Jewish name, Saul, and his Greek name, Paul. Listen to how we are introduced to this man. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58, it says this. Speaking of the killing of Stephen, They cast him, that is Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning, him, stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then we read here in chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul, or Paul, has been at work attempting to stamp out the spread of Christianity. He is breathing threats and murder, Luke writes there in, in verse 1. Saul's attitude towards Christians, his attitude towards his enemies, is one of hatred. And his tactics include intimidation and fear-mongering. Word will begin to spread throughout the land about just how dangerous this man is. Today, we would call Saul a religious terrorist. He was killing people because they were Christians. He was dragging off men and women, which, by the way, it mentions men and women a few times. This is a side note, but that was important. That was not done. Usually, they just hauled the men off. But Saul was so ruthless that he hauled both to put them in prison. So so severe was his hatred of his enemies. In his own words, he will write describing his life before Christ, before he was saved. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says this, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Saul was eager to persecute Christians. In his eyes, nowhere was safe. No border could stop him. He's coming after you. But he did need permission. Saul needed the permission of the high priest to travel to Damascus for the purpose of arresting Christians. He needed, basically, he needed an arrest warrant. This is what the end of verse 1 and verse 2 tells us. But nevertheless, his attitude was seething with threats. Saul, think about this. Saul needed permission, but the gospel needs no permission. Saul needed permission, but Jesus needs no permission. He needed permission to capture Christians, but the gospel needs no further permission to capture the hearts because God has already, in fact, he's already given us the great commission. Go and make disciples, he says. Saul needed permission, and Jesus said, I don't need anybody's permission. You're mine. In verse, uh, Chapter 8, verse 2 of Acts says that Christians are scattered due to severe persecution. But God, in His divine providence, uses this to spread the gospel. Well, nevertheless, here we are seeing Saul setting out in hot pursuit of Christians. And we need to note that Saul, I, I said this, I guess, we, we, we need to be sure to understand that Saul is, is going after both men and women because he is ruthless. I can't stress enough how ruthless Saul is, how much of a terrorist. Uh, And a fear mongerer, he would raise fear in the hearts of Christians everywhere. The best way to describe him is to say that he was an enemy of God. He is opposed to God's Son. He is opposed to God's way of salvation. And this is not unique to Saul. The same is true for those at the city of Corinth. And such were some of you, he says. It's true for all who are not God's children. It's true for all who have not repented and believed. The same is true for us apart from Christ's intervention. Listen to Isaiah 59. Listen to what the prophet says. Isaiah 59 verses 1 to 3 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters witter, uh, wickedness. It, it can't be any clearer than that. Those verses, Isaiah 59, they clearly describe Paul as he, as he was in Acts chapter 7, 8, and, and at least at the beginning of chapter 9. But they also describe us. Sin separates us from God. It drives a wedge between God and us. And, and listen, God is holy. He cannot look at sin. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. We read this condemnation of humanity. Listen to this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's total depravity. We are totally lost and depraved. There's no other way to put it. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Except we might say, if you know anything about the scriptures, well, that was before the flood. That was before God poured out his judgment on the earth and and Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And so God spared him. And that's true. Noah did find grace in the eyes of God. And God did spare Noah and immediately after the flood. When Noah and his family first came out of the ark, when they were the only people on earth, even as they were offering up a burnt offering of thanksgiving and praise to God, God says this in response to their burnt offering in Genesis 8 verse 21. The Lord smelled the the pleasing aroma, the burnt offering. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Still, we are still totally depraved. And as a result, even while God has promised not to pour out his judgment on all men, but rather to save some, our sin has separated us from God. Again, that Isaiah passage, Isaiah 59, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He won't look at us. He won't listen to us. We are completely defiled. Does not this not describe the Apostle Paul here in, in Acts? Does it not describe the chief of sinners? Isaiah 59.3 tells us that the blood of the innocent is on our hands. Look at Paul in verse 1. Our fingers are stained with our own sin. We're a people of unclean lips. Our tongues taste, taste nothing but unrighteousness. Colossians 1.21, we are alienated and hostile in mind. Colossians 2.13, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.3, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 5.10, we are enemies of God. What does, I, what does Isaiah 59, one say, though? I'll read it again. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear dull that it cannot hear. We are completely defiled. We are totally depraved. And yet, we're not too lost. We're not too far gone. We're not too dead that God can't bring us back to life. Paul is not beyond saving. But, but I, need to, I need to tell you something. In order to be saved, you need to first realize that you're lost. In order to be redeemed, you need to first realize that you're a sinner in need of redemption. But I'm not going to leave you there. Because not only are we totally depraved, but God calls us unconditionally. Again, look at Paul in Acts chapter 9. Listen to verses 3 through 6. Acts 9.3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. What we can see in these verses is what we could call the doctrine of unconditional election. Unconditional election. Unconditional election. Saul was traveling to Damascus, and every intention of his heart was evil from his youth. He was still breathing threats and murder. He was determined to capture Christians, and you know what? He thought he was serving God. Saul thought he was serving God. He thought his salvation was about keeping the law. He thought salvation was about being a good Jew. And so as he was traveling, he had no doubt in his mind. In other words, and here's what I'm saying, Saul is not having a spiritual crisis. In fact, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was confident that he was doing the Lord's work. He had gone to the high priest and received permission. They had given him permission. They had given him arrest warrants. He thought he was doing what the Lord wanted him to do. He was to purge the earth of the infidels. He was on a mission from God, or so he thought, until he saw the light. Now let me just interject right here that Jesus did not look down from heaven and say to himself, hey, there's an intense guy, and he's willing to travel. He's going to make a great missionary. But Jesus saw a vile, wretched sinner, and he confronted him. He confronted him. He confronted Saul really in two ways. He confronted him with his glory, and he confronted him with his word. His glory. Suddenly, a light shone from heaven. uh, Light from heaven shone around him. This this isn't a lightning bolt. This is the Shekinah glory of God. The light that radiates from God Himself. It's the light that God said when He said, "Let there be light." That light lit up creation. It's the light that will be the source of light in the new heavens and the new earth when there will be no need for a sun because the sun, S-O-N, will be the source of our light. It's the light that was so intense that He was knocked to the ground, not because He was worshiping. Christ's glory forced Him into the dirt. It forced Him onto His face. Saul was seeing the glory of Christ. And where the glory of God is seen, the word of God is heard. God spoke creation into existence. What, we, what is seen is always designed to make way for what is to be heard. Okay? Natural revelation, creation. All creation proclaims the glory of the Lord. The things that we can see around us testify. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. These things testify to the existence of a benevolent creator. Romans tells us this. But it also makes way for his special revelation. Natural revelation makes way for special revelation. For God's word revealing his decrees. Scripture puts it this way. Faith comes by hearing we have to hear the word of God God's words and this is the second way in which Christ confronted Saul with his word with his glory and with his word Saul Saul why are you persecuting me this question by the way this isn't just merely a conversation starter this isn't an icebreaker the light actually did that when it knocked him to the ground This is a confronting of Saul's sin because up until this point, he is actively rejecting and hating the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. This question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? is really an accusation that threw everything in Saul's life work into question. Why are you persecuting me? Consider that question. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus really feels the pain at the persecution of his church. See, being in Christ doesn't simply mean that we will suffer for the sake of Christ. We likely will. But it is more than that. We will share in his sufferings. But he also said, and don't forget this, Lo, I am with you always. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, he said, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. That's Paul. He rejected not only the message of the apostles, the message of the church, the message of Christians, the message of the gospel, he rejected the Messiah, and in rejecting the Messiah, he rejected God. Well, before Saul could be made an apostle, remember in 1 Corinthians 1, he calls himself Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Before he could be an apostle, he had to be made a saint. Before he could be made a saint, he had to be shown to be a sinner because he, he thought he was a saint. But he had to be shown not just to be any sinner, a great sinner personally offending Christ. Conviction of sin is the first step toward a saving conversion from sin. Saul was convicted of a specific sin. He had rejected Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. And he was convicted of trying to destroy the very thing that Jesus had said, I will build his church. God will use this convicted sinner, ironically, and in his... um, for his glory, he will use this convicted sinner to build up the church at Corinth. And not only the church at Corinth, even us. On the road to Damascus, still breathing threats and murder against followers of the way, Christians, Christ interrupts Saul's life. and Saul can only respond with, Who are you, Lord? He answers Jesus' question with a question. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you? He answers this question with his own question. But it, and it's clear, and, and Saul had to understand this, that he's talking to some representative of heaven. It's clear that he's talking to some representative of heaven. But who? Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This Jesus whom the apostles bore witness of. This Jesus whom Stephen cried out to in his death. This Jesus who was crucified. This Jesus who was buried. This Jesus whose followers have been proclaiming as having risen from the dead. This Jesus whose disciples preach as having ascended to heaven where he now sits at God's right hand. This Jesus who is glorified with the Father. And Saul can say nothing else. Saul cannot respond when he says, This Jesus, I am Jesus. From this moment on, Saul is a new man. He is a new creation. Listen again to what he said in Galatians chapter 1. I read the first part of this earlier. He said this, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism... kind of an understated way of saying i saw the glorious jesus he knocked me into the dirt and saved me when he should have poured out his wrath on me he should have killed saul in his tracks but when he who had set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me he says in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is unconditional election. God chooses us despite us. Paul did nothing deserving his salvation. Look in in this account. Look at what Paul does next. Or or really, we could say, look at what he doesn't do. There's no argument. There's also no altar call. Saul would laugh at the notion, I have decided to follow Jesus. He didn't decide to follow Jesus. He has no choice. He is on the ground. He's knocked down. He is blinded. He's confronted with his own sin. And then in verse 6, Jesus tells him to get up and go to the city where he's going to be told what to do. He didn't want a choice. Paul will write in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In this moment, he lost everything and he didn't care because Jesus spared his life and called him to something totally different that he doesn't even know yet. That Saul is chosen, drives him to worship, it drove him to praise. It drove him to preach. It drove him to witness. A, a, a man who has been called the, the greatest evangelist since the Apostle Paul. Maybe that's a stretch, but he's been called that sometimes. George Whitfield. He said, The doctrines of our election of free justification in Christ Jesus, are daily more and more pressed upon my heart. They fill my soul with a holy fire and afford me great confidence in God my Savior. If our salvation is all the work of Christ, as it is for Paul here, clearly, if our salvation is all the work of Christ, how confident can we be knowing that He has done this, that He has called us, God unconditionally makes us his own. He didn't make Saul clean up his act. He just convicted him of sin and saved him. And how, how irresistible is his grace? How irresistible is God's grace? Look at verse 7 there, Acts 9, 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. In other words, this was not a subjective personal kind of mystical experience for Saul this was a real concrete event in his life I have no doubt that the apostle Paul could give you the time and date and probably the exact moment on that road to Damascus of where Jesus knocked him down and saved him and what they witnessed here his companions in verse 7 it left them speechless they had no idea what was happening But they had to understand that this was a very big deal. These guys were no dummies. These also were devout Jews. They were going with him to assist him in the work that he was doing. It's likely, probable, that they were part of the temple guard. These were were like police officers, uh, royal Jewish police officers. And so Saul had witnesses to, to this event. He could not have gotten away with fabricating it. This was not something that happened when he was alone in the wilderness and nobody else saw. In fact, those things Saul doesn't tell us about. He just says, I was alone in the wilderness with Jesus for a few years. But Luke here tells us exactly what happened. And there were witnesses. And look at verses 8 and 9. Saul rose from the ground and though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The irony is pretty rich here. Um, Jesus said uh, more than one occasion that he came to give sight to the blind. Saul is now blinded, but as you can see, and it alludes to this in verse 9, and you know from later on, this blindness is temporary. He's blinded. But he is, in reality, able to now fully see. And this temporary blindness is probably the result of seeing God's glory, but it wasn't judgment. Instead, I think what's happening is that the the physical appearing of Jesus left a mark on Saul. But beyond the physical, God also used this moment to set apart Paul for a specific task. Again, remember how he begins this letter to the church at Corinth. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle in Christ Jesus. Jump down to Acts 9.15, where where Jesus tells a man named Ananias to go and get Saul. Just jump down kind of in the middle of that next paragraph. But the Lord said to him, that is Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus is giving this Ananias insight into into Saul's specific calling and God's plan for his life. Saul will be a chosen instrument. He will be someone whom God has set apart for a very specific task. Yes, he will be a missionary, but he will be unlike any other missionary who has ever lived even since then. He's going to be a pastor, but he's going to be different from all other pastors. He's going to be an apostle. He's even going to be different from the other apostles. He is going to be one who has been sent by Christ and given his specific authority to build up the church. This is the the job of an apostle, one who is sent, sent by Christ with Christ's authority to build up the church. And yet, even though Saul is set apart as someone very unique, all Christians have this in common with him. He's an instrument in his Redeemer's hands. He is a a jar of clay carrying a priceless treasure. As we read in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Paul would be used in mighty ways. Unique ways. And he understood himself to be set apart for the gospel of God. He understood himself to be set apart as apostle. This meant that he is going to be that instrument of, of Christ's choosing, a vessel through which Jesus Christ would build up his church. But note that he is a chosen instrument, he says, Jesus says there in verse 15, to carry his name. The purpose of Paul's life and work was to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. To proclaim the message and the work of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He will tell the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. In Romans chapter 1, verse 15, he will say, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul writes with authority as an apostle to build up the church. Of Corinth, and he writes with authority as one who has tasted the grace of God, one who has seen and felt the grace of God, one who likely bore the marks of his encounter with Christ for the rest of his life. In Galatians, he will talk about his bad eyesight. Probably that affected him his entire life, and it drove him to preach the gospel. And so he writes this letter, letter to the church at Corinth, to say this. This is what he ends with. I read this earlier. We prayed this earlier. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Previously, while he was headed to Damascus, I have no doubt that his intentions were to stamp out the spread of the gospel wherever he could. Would he have gone to Corinth to persecute the church there? Possibly. But now he says this. This is actually from the first chapter. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus probably your um, testimony of converting to Christ was not as dramatic as Paul's. Maybe it was dramatic, but probably it was not as dramatic as the Apostle Paul's. But you were called, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Praise God that he didn't have to knock most of us into the dirt. Praise God that he saved us. We will look more into the Corinthian church next week. We've now finished the first word of the first verse, of the first letter to the church at Corinth. Pray with me. Lord, as we consider how you poured out your grace on Paul, Saul, when you should have poured out your wrath on one who was filled with hatred and murder, one who in his heart, while he thought he was enforcing the law, was actually breaking it, was actually going to destroy what Christ had promised to build. And Lord, we are, while we may not be seething like Paul was, our hearts are filled with sin. Apart from Christ, Lord, we are lawbreakers. We break your law, we break your good commands in our hearts. Sometimes we break them physically, sometimes we break them in our actions But we know that we break them in our hearts and in our minds. But in your mercy, you have poured out your grace on us. And so we give thanks because of the grace of God that was given to us in Christ Jesus. That in every way we are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among us, so that we are not lacking in any gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are faithful, and you have called us into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen.